Hello, and welcome to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Keith Gabbard, CEO of People's Rural Telephone Cooperative, or PRTC. Welcome, Keith. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you with us today. You've got a powerful story to tell about the positive impact that telecoms and connectivity can have on our communities. So I'm looking forward to get into that. But maybe to kick things off, I'd love if you could share a little bit about your background and, and how you got into telecoms in the first place. What's well, an interesting story. I, I grew up here in McKee, Kentucky. That's where the headquarters of, of PRTC is. And I went away to college, got a degree in business, uh, but I wanted to come back home and work, and there's just not a lot of jobs here in, in Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky, the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. So I came back home and, and just happened to be an open job at PRTC, but it was like in customer service answering the phone. I was glad to get it. I was just getting ready to get married, and uh, my wife and I both wanted to stay here, work here. And and so that's how I started my career. That was 45 years ago, 1976. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I had a degree in management. 20 years later, I became the CEO here. So 25 years being the CEO, it's been a really good, a great place to work and it's been a great career and I'm, you know, very thankful, but it's a, it's a cool place to work. It's been a lot of changes in those 45 years, the last 20, especially. Yeah, I would imagine. It's great that your story is very much, you know, kind of, you know, what America is all about, starting with an entry-level job and then working your, all, your way all the way up to the top. And that's very impressive. So I want to talk a little bit about about McKee and where you are, because your story is very much about the impact of, you know, technology on rural America. So as you said, you're in McKee, Kentucky. Maybe could you paint us a picture of what McKee and the, you know, uh, Jackson County, maybe what it was like 10 years ago before uh, you did anything in terms of your fiber roller that we'll talk about? Yeah, of course, we, one thing that we haven't said yet, but our story is, you know, we built fiber to the premise to every single home and business in, in this county and next in two counties. And uh, we finished that project in 2014. So, so before that, I mean, most of our population worked in the adjoining counties, not a lot of industry here, probably over 50% of our people drove maybe 30, 40, 50 miles one way to work. And there's still a lot that do because there might be a good paying job they don't want to leave. But since we've built the fiber network, since work from home has become a thing and it sort of became a thing here even before the pandemic hit with the pandemic it just accelerated the need for that in all areas whether it's healthcare, education or or economic development but but we were pushing the work from home you know maybe for the last five six years we've been doing that we've been doing some some training about work from home type jobs customer service type jobs and we've partnered with some folks uh, telework usa for one and and helped create a uh, real environment with good broadband that we have. Now it's about 1,200 work-from-home jobs documented through that program. And a lot of these people are working for companies like Apple. And it's pretty cool in Eastern Kentucky to say, I'm doing customer support for Apple because it's a cool company and a lot of people have iPhones and iPads and, and it's neat to think we're doing uh, that customer support from right here in our own county. Absolutely. I think um, it, it's clear that your decision to to do that fiber rollout to every every business, every home in your service area has had a huge impact. If we go back to when you were considering doing it, I read somewhere that I think you knew that there were some network upgrades needed anyway. You've got some old copper that needs to be replaced. And somehow most people in that situation 
would do some kind of incremental improvement, right? They'd say, okay, let's repair what needs repairing. What can we do that's fairly cost efficient? But you decided instead to kind of go big. Tell me a bit about that decision. Like, what were you weighing? How did you decide that that was the direction to go? Yeah, it was around about 2007. We were looking to upgrade some old copper and we, we just got into the TV business, bought some, some, uh, coax, coax TV systems. They needed upgraded too. And so we wanted to do everything with one thing. And we, of course, we had some fiber our day work uh, to connect our, our switching devices and remote switching things. So we were like, okay, if we can go all fiber, we can, that's all we'll need. All this other stuff can go away. And we, we heard of some other companies. There was actually one other one in Kentucky that started a fiber-to-home project. You knew it was expensive. A lot of other companies, you know, you hear about Google doing this gigabit, five, gigabit cities. And we saw, okay, we're going to borrow some money. So we borrowed from USDA $20 million, which we we borrowed money from them before in past for, for a copper network build out. And we thought, okay, we're going to bite the bullet and give this thing a shot. And that way we can, you know, we heard how low maintenance fiber was. And, and it was, if we could get this done, this could be a, maybe a 50-year plan that we might not per or even longer. And so we got one year out of this project. The era stimulus for broadband came out under the Obama administration. And we thought the first year was going pretty good. Uh, I thought, okay, maybe if we can get some more money, we might do our whole system. So we applied for some funding in the first round, we got denied. We've done something wrong with the application. I can't even remember what it was, but we reapplied in the second round, actually with better terms, and we were approved. So we ended up with a $25 million combination grant loan. So you take that first 20 plus that 25, then at the end we added 5 million of our own capital, and we were able to build 1,000 miles of fiber, $50,000 a mile, $50 million investment, and every single person in our two counties to get fiber. And I wish I could tell you I was smart enough to know how how much that would have transformed everybody's life in 2007. But uh, we just took a chance and thought this was a good thing to do and we'll see how it goes. But uh, it's been transformational. It's, it's you know, changed people's lives. It's been such a cool thing. And I grew up my whole life here with people complaining about all the things we didn't have. We didn't have a four-lane highway, a hospital. Starbucks, Walmart, college, all these counties surrounding me that have those things. They're like, why don't you build fiber in our county? Our internet's not very good. <laughs> we are yours is great. And uh, so it's pretty cool to be having something other people want instead of wanting something other people have. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Approximately, what's the population of your service area roughly? Our biggest town is 700 people in the key. We have one stoplight in the whole One camp. stoplight. Okay. Yep. Stoplight town. Our population of uh, this county, since this just came out, is about 13,000. The other county we serve, Owsley, is 4,000, so about 17,000 people combined okay. for those two counties. All right, cool. And you were able to access through, I guess this is probably the 2008 financial crisis stimulus funding. You were able to access a lot of money. When you first started thinking about this, did you have any idea how much it was going to cost? Not really. I mean, we, we had our plans, we had our thoughts, we had, we, we had engineered and, and all planned out, but you don't really know until you get into it. But, you know, like we said, we knew what that first 20 million loan was going to cost us. Everything had to be approved by the government to, to get it. And so we just went from there and we thought, we thought 25 million more get most of it. So we underestimated by five and we had to come up with our own money. We're, we're also part owner of a regional wireless company. That helps us with a little bit of capital. In the beginning days, that was, you know, not a moneymaker. 
diversified back in the mid nineties, late nineties. But now that's that gives us a little capital to help put all this fiber build out. And of course, since two thousand four, when we completed this, the last five years we've been building out into some of the surrounding counties. And we got some funding to do that as well. We may talk about that later. But we're probably spent eight million dollars and spending some of it our own money, some of it grant money, some of it combination grant loan. And uh, we're aggressively looking to, if we can make a business case for it, to, to build out to more of Eastern Kentucky. Because the longer we go with this fire to the home, the more we realize not only how good our broadband is, you get a bit capable for everybody, but how bad it is under three meg in some places in some of these surrounding counties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I can't imagine the difference. Somebody going from like three megabits on DSL or whatever to then switching to your gigabits fiber. That must be quite a quite a shock for people. And we offer three plans, 100 meg up and down, 500 up and down, or a gig up and down. And when we go out into these other counties that, that have, you know, somebody else providing their internet and they're used to really, really slow, we found that more and more of them, they don't just get 100 meg, they want a gig. They want, right. <laughs> they want the fastest they can get. Whether they need it or have to have it or not, we're happy to sell it to them. Yeah. Interesting. Absolutely. I'm curious to um, hear a little bit about the execution of the project. So it's one thing to have the vision and to get the funding, but then you had quite a few years there, like I guess five, six years, where you were rolling out that fiber to, did you say a thousand miles of fiber? Is that yes, right? Thousand. Um, that's got to have been quite a hard thing to do. And I'm guessing, you know, you're in Appalachia. Your terrain is not like nice and flat roads here. How, how did you, yeah, tell me a bit about the execution. How did you approach that? Well, we, of course, back then, we were doing, we were doing most of these projects. We'd bid them and contractors would get the contract to actually build the fiber. And at one time, I think we had five different contract bids out, five different contractors going at the same time in this small, two small counties. And of course, part of this whole era act was economic stimulus with the crisis back in 2007. And not only was it doing a stimulus for our area for the future, because the fiber, as we know, has been, a, has had a big economic impact, but every home was rented every, <laughs> there were workers coming in here from everywhere and they had every vacant premise rented out and it was pretty interesting seeing all these people. I remember one guy, the, this story that one of my board members told me, this was a guy from Indiana, he's working for a contractor. Uh, he was, we were building out fiber into some, some hall or somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, he told her later, he's like, I live up where Peyton Manning lives. He don't even have fiber at the home. He goes, look at these people. <laughs> got fiber at the home here in the middle of nowhere. He's had a hard time believing that. But in some cases, we, you know, we're, we're very mountainous terrain, rocky, and not a lot of flatland. But we even used, some of our contractors might even use a mule to pull some of this fiber and put it up. And that became a story all in itself. Somebody did a story about the picture of old Bub the mule building <laughs> fiber and state-of-the-art fiber into, in, in our communities. And it just... That I get asked about old Bub all the time still, and uh, that people just that resonates with them that you know that old school method of putting the state of the art technology out. Yeah, I, with with all of this cool technology, with all the technology we have available to ourselves today, sometimes the thousands of year old option of the mule is still the best way of doing something. I love that. Um, he's probably a very valuable mule. He's created a lot of economic uh, value to your community. 
Yeah, some guy in Lexington actually wrote us. Actually, even wrote a song about him. So we even got a song written about old uh, mule building five marine PRTs. Excellent. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> so, all right. So, yeah, you've you've talked about you've got you know your three plans today, so people can get gigabit throughout these counties. I think I read somewhere that you were planning even to go higher than that. You were wanting to upgrade because gigabit wasn't enough. Is that true? We are planning to upgrade to ten gig. That's our next our next plan, and. Uh, we're in a process that we haven't, you know, done it yet, but we're the electronics. Of course, you know, really is changing electronics and that fiber's going to do whatever. I'll pretty much, I won't say whatever. It's not like I know what's going to happen in the future, but, you know, they call fiber future proof. And I'm, you know, I hate to call anything future proof, but it's about as close to anything as you can get to it, I think. It feels like you're jinxing it, but as far as we understand, <laughs> it should keep us going for a very long time. <laughs> yes, I think so. What would, I, this is just me kind of thinking off the top of my head here, but like what application needs 10 gigabit fiber? I don't know. We've got a, we don't have any hospitals in our county, but we've branched out into a surrounding county and that hospital, they have bought about four or five gigabit circuits from us. So I guess they might be an example of somebody like on 10 gig, gotcha. but I think very few right now, I mean, right. there's there are very few even needs a gig right now, but. You and I both know that's going to change as years go by. I mean, how many years ago was were people doing dial-up and were doing, you know, we thought less than a meg was a high speed. Well, you know, T1 is 1.5, and Absolutely. everybody thought that was the Cadillac of, of internet, and now it's like dial-ups. Yeah, people always find new things to use the bandwidth for eventually. And yeah, I guess that's probably going to be true of 10 gig, even if we can't uh, see it today. I'm curious a little bit, actually, so we've been talking all about your to the home, kind of the access side of the network. How are you interconnected to the outside world? Because getting everybody back to your central office in McKee or wherever is fine, but they also, you presumably need a huge amount of bandwidth then to the outside world. We have a pretty good way of doing that. We, uh, I told you we were partners in a wireless company and there's five small companies in Eastern Kentucky, one of them. And when we formed our wireless company, we also build a fiber ring connecting all six companies. So we, we have like a 370 mile fiber ring connecting all six of our companies and also to the outside world. And, and we have two or three different connection points and we'll go out to one of the larger cities and maybe Lexington, Kentucky, wherever, then we eventually get to, you know, Chicago or Atlanta or, or wherever. So we, we've got a, got a pretty good pipe that, that we all use and, and it's worked well. And we did that probably 20 years ago. Cool. That's, yeah, future-proofing way back then, you, which has still served you today, even with uh, all the bandwidth requirements people have. That's, that's great. So you mentioned right at the beginning kind of the impact that this has had um, on the community. Just dig a little bit more into that. So you've talked about people having work-from-home jobs. I think you mentioned, as it teleworks, there's a particular non-for-profit that is somehow really helping to kind of promote that kind of job in your area. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a company called Teleworks USA, and it's actually sort of a part of EKCEP. EKCEP, it's a, it's a job training organization in Eastern Kentucky. And they came to us many, many years ago, and they said, we've got this idea about training people to work from home, and we hear you got good broadband. We'd like to set up a hub in your county. And I'm like, yeah, we'll work with you, because I'm always interested in helping in economic development in our community. So we, we partner with the county. We got some... They had a building that was pretty vacant. We wired it and helped them with the computers and gave them uh, a gigabit broadband and pretty much gave it to them. 
took a while. A few months it sat there and was like in the room. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. But then they hired this lady. I always give her the credit, Betty Hayes, and she just was a rock star. And she she was training a bunch of people that she knew that it, that had been the factory had ended production and, and shut down there in the community. And there was several ladies that worked there that was looking for a job. So she trained them to for digital skills. And then so she was like, okay, so where are these jobs? And I said, well, you really got to go out and find them. So if we're not, they're not sitting here. So Betty was like, okay, I've got this woman trained. I got to find him a job. And so she went out and found these companies, got herself hired a job two or three times just to develop relationships. And it's amazing what she's done. And she's developed relationships with some of the largest third-party customer service companies in the world. And uh, now, like, they're coming to us saying, okay, we've got 100 jobs. Can you help us find 100 people? <laughs> and at first, they were worried about, okay, we're just going to keep these in these three or four counties because we're afraid these jobs are going to run out. And now now they're like, this thing's been going on for five or six years. Now they're like, there are tens of thousands of jobs. We, we're not worried about the jobs. Not many enough jobs. We're just trying to fill them as best we can. And it's amazing some of the relationships we made. And a lot of these companies, they don't want you to tell the company they're working for. I mean, it might be U-Haul, it might be Hilton, it might be Apple. But the companies that actually sends them the paycheck is another company. It's a third party that that, that company has has hired to do their customer service work. And that. but it's really it's really cool. And they since the pandemic, they're doing all that training virtually as well. Right. And they those hubs, you know, they sort of started here in my two counties, the first one and then the second one. There's about nine of them in East Kentucky now. But all nine of them are doing virtual training now. And there's been I think to about 35, 3,600 jobs in Eastern Kentucky, but about a third of them have been in my two counties just because we have such good programming and we were one first. And they give us some credit for making this happen, but you know, and we're, we'll, we'll take a little, but we're sort of not going to take it all. It, was, it took a lot, of, a lot of people working together, whether it's communities, counties, the staff, good hub managers that, that really helped these folks. And one of the biggest uh, problems they said was people not believing it was a real job, like it was something fake or a scam. But it's, you know, they make good money and it's it's really been transformational for some lives here. We have a lot of a lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty here, and that's really been helpful to some of our people. Yeah, I think that's probably what makes your story so compelling is there's a general narrative in the country, the Rust Belt and a lot of, I think in McKee, you had a couple of factories that have closed down over the last 20 years, which have led to unemployment and, and all of that. But what you're describing is, if anything, a shortage of workers rather than a shortage of jobs for people in your counties, which is really remarkable as a contrast. It is. And then finding a good job is always a problem there especially a good paying job. And this has been a big change for people. Some, some of these people working minimum wage at a convenience store or something. Now they're, they're getting double or triple that pay with benefits and, and, and you know, never leaving home. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm curious, the jobs that you're seeing created, are these mostly you know local residents who are getting new opportunities that they might not have had before, which I guess you know what you just described there? Or do you also see people like moving to the area because you've got great broadband? Both. And I'll tell you an interesting story. I think I was, the post office is like a half a mile from our office here. I was down there getting mail the other day. There's a guy in a truck with a piece of paper with uh, PRTC's name and address on it. He was like, he was like, of course, he had an accent. He probably couldn't understand me. He was from <laughs> New Jersey. So I'm looking for a PRTC office and I just moved down here. And um, 
I said, well, I work for them. I, you know, it's about a half mile to road. And I told him where it was. And I started asking, I said, so, so where have you, he said, I mean, he bought a farm in our, in one of our areas of our county. And he said, he moved down here to his kids, of course, going to school online. His and his wife, him and his wife were in cybersecurity business. They work from home. And I said, well, we're glad to have you as a customer. But I said, why, why did you move here? He said, well, I read about you guys in the New Yorker. Wow. Like, wow. That's pretty cool. That, that's nice. That's nice to know. But anyway, we, we get, of course, I don't know how many people that are there are because I don't meet them all. But we do have a lot of people from other states that are moving to our area. Part of it, I'm sure, is just part of the big city. It's low, low cost of land and things like that. But there's so many people working from home that we don't even know what they're doing. Or, or, but it's, it's, it is really nice to be a place, a destination place, at least for some folks. Because we you know, we have beautiful scenery, mountains. Uh, people like, if you want to be where you don't have to be right next to one to somebody all the time and in a rural area, we definitely got that covered. But yeah, we're close enough to, to where if you want to drive an hour, hour and a half, you can be a pretty good, pretty good size city as well. Yep. Yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting in the coming years now that kind of through the pandemic, lots of people have suddenly realized, hey, we can work from home. That's a possibility to see you know, what that does to society in general, you know, are we going to have a lot more people choosing to live in somewhere beautiful, but remote like McKee, rather than being forced to kind of live in a big city next to a, an office building. So yeah, that's really cool. Um, I'd like to talk just to ask a little bit more about, you know, the pandemic and particularly education, because I think a lot of people when COVID hits their schools were suddenly kind of panicking because they're trying to do remote learning in places where maybe a lot of the families didn't have decent internet. I'm guessing you just kind of bypassed all of that because you did the work 10 years ago or five years ago. Is that is that fair? Well, partly, partly, but we've still got some people that didn't have internet due to poverty or other reasons. So we tried to work. We have a really good partnership with the school system. We've had all the schools connected with fiber for 20 years and we reached out to them when, when everything went to virtual learning and there were still kids that didn't have the internet, not because they couldn't get it, because it was there, but they did their family either didn't think they could afford it or didn't see the need or whatever. And so we, this is not a real good fix, but it was one way we opened up about eight or nine free Wi-Fi spots to drop parking lots and things like that. But we also offered a discounted price for students if they like, qualified for the federal lifeline which is sort of the same qualifications for the emergency broadband benefit that's going on now. We'd offered them a, you know, like a 1995 plan. Then we also even gave, we partnered with a couple of philanthropic organizations and, and got some maybe 40 or 50 families free internet for about a year in addition to all that. But we, we certainly had the, the network available, but there were still issues. And the schools pretty much gave all these kids Chromebooks or something to use with them. But there's still a challenge. I mean, as you know, it is everywhere. Parents trying to help their kids learn, and especially these young ones. I mean, they're trying to work. And uh, I mean, during the pandemic, where it first happened, we were just really challenged here trying to figure out all folks that didn't have broadband. A lot of them were wanting it then because they saw the need. We were trying to install it, but... Yeah, how do we keep our whole staff safe? And how do we keep those people safe? And I, it was such a challenge. We were changing our rules around here weekly to try to uh, be responsive to the needs of the customer and also the safety of the customer and our own people. And 
it's quite a challenge, but our broadband numbers went up. But we don't want a pandemic to happen for that to happen. But, <laughs> but we, I think about every provider could say the same thing. The need for broadband and the, the, the folks that got broadband went, you know, that, that meet went up as well. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So I'm curious, obviously you benefited significantly from the Obama era stimulus funding. You know, last year we recently had a, the RDOF, which is kind of the more recent version of the same thing. They had a, an auction to, again, stimulate rural broadband. And one of the biggest winners was actually um, Starlink, which is a satellite internet provider, part of SpaceX, which is one of Elon Musk's com- companies. I'm curious what you think about kind of this next generation of satellite internet as an alternative to the fiber that you've done and how you, how you think about how you think that fits into the ecosystem. You know, that is interesting. I've been reading a lot about that and I'm, I'm not, I'm prejudiced. I'm pretty much sold on fiber and, and I realize we're the wireless business too. But I also know that all these towers have to have fiber as well. And when we have fiber to all our towers in our area, but there's certainly a plenty of place for satellite, just, just like there's a place for satellite uh, internet now. Some of the counties we're building into right now, satellite internet's all they have. Uh, it's the old fashioned, it's, I don't say old fashioned, it's the other satellite in it, the internet right. before this one. But they're all one fiber. And uh, I think fiber's better, but I think there's a place for the other, especially the more rural, the even more rural areas than we have. But you get in more urban areas and it's, it's going to be a little more difficult. There's a limit to how many customers I think each of these satellites can handle. But, but I don't, I don't want to be critical of, of, a, of another competitor. There's, there's, we deal with competitors right now. We deal with cable TV competitors, with wireless competitors, with satellite competitors. And uh, I think there's a place for all of them. And I used to say this when we were primarily a phone company. I said, well, I think everybody needs a landline and a cell and a wireless phone. We'll pick it eat more of the other. They need both. Yep. But uh, part of that was probably self-serving, but still, I think there's a place for both. Yep. Yeah, and no, I think satellite is certainly a great option to have for those areas where fiber doesn't get built for whatever reason. But you're right, clearly fiber is faster. And so anywhere where it makes economic sense with or without stimulus to build fiber, then that's going to be the better option. I'd agree with that. And I mean, I think you can make an economic case for building fiber if you've got some help or some subsidy, I mean, there's places you don't have to have that. But I think if, if you get some of that, you can make a case for most cases, at least on the east of the Mississippi, and you get west of the Mississippi, some of those places might be a little different. I mean, lived out there, I've traveled and visited them, but they can get pretty open, wide open spaces out there. There's lots of, yeah, lots of wide open spaces, which, yeah, I guess the, the worse your population density is, or the lower your population density is, not better or worse, but lower yeah. than we, the We've got about six, six or seven customers per mile of fiber. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, you know, we'd like to have 20 or 100 or 1,000, like a big city, but <laughs> it's a lot easier to make a business case. But, uh, of course, that's why the big companies are doing a good job in these rural areas. They just don't see... They're, they're, they feel beholden to their stockholders and they don't, they put their money in where more people are. And, and we're just a local nonprofit cooperative. We're not on the stock market. We're just trying, we're trying to provide a better place to work and live in our two counties and now some of the other counties around us. We see, I mean, I live in McKee, Kentucky, but I see that Eastern Kentucky has got all kinds of broadband issues and I'd love for us and other companies like us to be able to help more and, and hopefully you know, make a little money or at least break even in the process. Yep. Yeah. I think having 
companies like yours or, or any local based service provider, which is whether it's for profit or not for profit, often they're not only for profit, right? They're not purely motivated by the profit, you know, the shareholders bottom line. It's also about the community that, that they're part of. And yeah, oh, yeah companies would, like that are would, always going to do better than you would believe the number of phone calls and emails I get from my friends and family or from people I've met in other counties that surround us saying, when do you think that fiber is going to be built out in my area? How much longer? <laughs> and uh, of course, it's nice to be wanted, but it's uh, they, they know how to get a hold of me, whereas I doubt the uh, head of an AT&T or somebody is, is that easily to be uh, easily e- e- easy to get a hold of them and, and ask them a couple of something like that. He's I don't probably know. not taking those calls now. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. <laughs> All right. So as you... <sighs> As you talk to peers in the industry, we've talked about this, the RDF funding, there's obviously more stimulus bills kind of going through the Senate and so on, even this year. And rural broadband seems to be a fairly bipartisan issue. People on both sides support it. So there does seem to be continued funding out there. If you're talking to a peer of yours in the industry who hasn't yet gone through this, or maybe had only recently received funding, and they're beginning a project like yours, or they're considering a project like yours, what's what advice would you give them? What lessons have you learned that you think would really help them to um, be effective as they undertake uh, an, an endeavor like this? Well, I don't want to come across like some kind of expert because we've learned from our mistakes as much as anything. But it's it's ironic that right now we're getting the middle of, we're getting ready to start some more projects. We've received some funding, Community Connect, Reconnect, and a little bit of RDOT money. And the shortage of fiber is a cure for everybody. And if I had to do over, I'd probably ordered a bunch of fiber beforehand. <laughs> I would say have your engineering done even before you, and maybe even for the whole county. You know, back in the early days, uh, the first award we got back in 2007, we had, en- had all the engineering done for fiber the whole network, even though we weren't even planning on doing it at that time. But having that ready, being as shovel-ready as possible, I think, is good. And, of course, having the material was is critical, and we're waiting on a bunch of material right now. That and it just be patience. Another thing, you, you're going to get this award, be all excited, and have a press conference. We got plenty of them. Then people are going to be calling a month later saying, "Where's my fiber?" And, <laughs> and what you really know is it's going to be two years before we can cut this fiber over at least. Yeah, you know, it's it just takes a while. It just takes a while. Be patient. The other thing I would say is, as far as the application of process for these awards, be diligent. Don't be discouraged. We've been turned down for more than we've been awarded. We just keep coming back. And sometimes it's our own mistakes. We check the box wrong or send a wrong map or something and we just correct it and go for it again because we don't get discouraged because we don't get something. We had a conference call yesterday with some uh, engineers with PFCC about our RDOF award or application or that they're still going through the process of fine-tuning and make sure everything's right and there were a couple of things that they needed to see differently and of course we're going to do that and you have to always work with these agencies and, and the, our states get ready to start a broadband program a lot of states have as well we're going to be looking at that as well and uh, we're, we're just going to always be looking for funding opportunities because of these rural areas where there are just a few people per mile you need some kind of help you don't have to have all of it. Don't have to be a grant, but there needs to be some grant money involved to to make it feasible and make a business case for it. And we're, you know, I think, people companies like ours need to be willing to to do that because it's easier to just sit back to, and we did this for a long time to sit back and say, "Well, I got my area covered. I'm taking care of my job and my people, and and we'll let us people drop fault and 
landlines and they drop TV cable services and go to everything broadband. You're losing services, but you may need to expand your area in order to either grow your business or even stay similar numbers for the long term. That's, that's sort of the way we're looking at it. Cool. I think that's a great message. Be diligent, keep at it. And yeah, yeah, don't give up even if you feel discouraged. That's a, a great message for anything. So thank you for, for sharing that. Keith, I don't want to keep you too long. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been a fascinating conversation and I think hopefully very valuable for our listeners. For those who want to learn more, um, I can share links um, on the website to um, that New Yorker article you mentioned. Um, and there's also a TV segment that uh, you shared with me that I'll, I'll share as well. If there's somebody listening who wants to connect with you in some way, is there a particularly good way to do that? I think you and I connected on LinkedIn originally, which might be one option. Yeah, I mean, email or, or my phone or whatever. To, can you share that? Or do I need to give my email address? It's, it's, it's Go ahead. Fine. Give you an email address. That works. It's the... Uh, Keith.Gambert, although you said Gabbard, I get called that a lot, so don't feel bad. Keith.Gambert, J-B-B-A-R-D, at PRTC.org. So it's Keith.Gambert at PRTC.org. And I got one story I want to tell you to end this thing, if you could give me a second. Absolutely. Today is Roberto Clemente Day. And I don't know if anybody knows who Roberto Clemente is. He's a famous baseball star for the Pittsburgh Pirates, first Puerto Rican a Latin American superstar, and he was my hero growing up. I was a big baseball fan, still am. And he's the reason I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, although nobody else is in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> and he went through a lot of problems, a lot of challenges starting in major leagues in the 50s. And he was this awesome player. And when I got to know him, he was like hit the greatest arm in baseball. And he kept won MVPs and batting titles and everything else. But he died in, in, when I was in college, 1972. He was uh, in an airplane crash. He was delivering goods to uh, Central America because they've had an earthquake there. He was trying to help those folks. He was a great humanitarian. And he uh, became more known, almost as much known for that as he did his baseball uh, ability. But one of the things that um, he always said is that if I can't make life better for the other people coming along behind me, that I've wasted my time on earth. And so I, you know, I don't know that I'm doing that, but we're trying to do that at PRTC, if we can make things better for people here on earth. And on the, the day that's named after him in baseball, I thought I had to tell that story because that's something that we try to, we try to strive to live by here. Absolutely. That's fantastic. I will share our Roberto Clemente's uh, Wikipedia page as well for anyone who wants to learn more about him and the work that, that he did. Well, cool. That has been fantastic. Um, thank you for sharing that, Keith. And yeah, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. For those listening, if you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And please join us again for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.